Are you ready? How ready are you? Are you ready in that moment? Sometimes the moment is all you get. I've had several moments in my life like that when I wasn't ready. One thing that I found is that I am not what I thought I was. And that's an interesting thing to, to sort of state. Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better. Please make me better. I want to get better. Today we're getting even better acquainted with Rita. Hello, Rita. Hi, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a kind of a, an update episode in a way. Uh, we recorded, I've literally been listening to you on the route here. So I feel like I've already been in conversation with you <laughs> this morning, but but it, but it was in fact us talking back in 20, what, 17, I guess, 2016, just when, after Brexit. When was the referendum? I know, I've tried to block out Brexit from my mind, So, but it was a week and a half after Brexit. <laughs> Must be 16, because I think it's right, been 16. a while until we triggered the article right. 51 and then it's two years and two years is in 19 that's right and it must I mean yeah 2016 makes sense because uh, we met when I was doing my show in 2015 in Edinburgh in fact that's the first question so the first question I ask everybody is is, is how do you know me and I've just sort of started to answer it myself but there yeah two, two moments because we went to your show me and my ex-partner so that's not explaining masculinity right and uh, you gave us cookies after the show and i don't remember whether you've given me cookies today there's <coughs> yes, cookies on the table nice the other thing was that we, we both attended gender and performance salon and um, we had this in- incredibly involved conversation right which uh, i think took me a while to realize that everybody else was reduced to listeners as we were sorry yeah of. we kind of did a weird performance for for everybody without <laughs> without knowing i mean we talked about that as well in in, in our first conversation and mm-hmm. uh, yeah I mean, we're both people who are inclined, I think, to talk. Sometimes learning to listen is a difficult thing. I mean, that's one of the reasons I set up this podcast is to learn to listen better uh, all those years ago. And I'm not sure I've achieved much better. <laughs> I, I can listen better in some contexts. <laughs> but that's the thing, isn't it? When you when you let your guard down, you just relax. And then you go like, oh, no, I shouldn't have relaxed because uh, I have been it's socially like, inappropriate. <laughs> because Gap Salon is very much this thing, oh, I'm, I'm amongst my people. Right. That's what it was, because we were all gender activists of some sort. Right. Mm, and I, I emphasize with this very strongly. I think just about into my entire improv career is constructed of me learning to listen more. Uh, to the point where, when I actually went to a structured course, my course leader gave me like all the nice things and the opportunity for growth. And all the nice things where you're so collaborative, you're so responsive... You pay so much attention and the opportunity for growth was, I'd like it if you took charge of the scenes more. I got really upset. I was like in my head, I was like, what the fuck is wrong with you? That's my, that's the problem with me. You can't, you don't even know. And actually he was right. Cause when I then tried taking charge of the scenes, it was not very natural. It felt quite aggressive and controlling, which is not how you take charge of an improv scene, really. It's still just as collaborative. It's a soft skill. Yeah. So he had a point, interestingly. It just turned out that I was so afraid of me taking control of things because also I didn't know how to do it well. Uh, And that's something that I'm also working on now through my sort of improv experience. Well, taking control of things is uh, doesn't necessarily is 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 not against 
uh, or uh, counter the idea of listening. I mean, in a, in a way, you know, in getting better acquainted, what, what I'm doing is I'm in control. I'm the host. Mm. Um, but the role of my, my host is, in theory, to listen more than I talk, although it's supposed to be a conversation. So it's not quite the same setup as, you know, I do do uh, occasional proper kind of interview type stuff where I don't talk and I just do listen. And I am capable of doing that. I'm not trying to do that on getting better acquainted. So if, you, <laughs> if people are like, oh, he talks too much, that's fair enough. Um, sometimes one person in a conversation talks too much and I, I accept that criticism. But if people are like, he's talking some and putting himself in the conversation. So that's not how interviews are supposed to go. Well, guess what? It's not an interview show, it's a conversation show. So that it's that's not part of the format. I can um, see that it gives you a bit of safety there. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think um, the way I think about it these days as well is, um, you know, if I'm talking to a, a, another cis, white, middle-class man, then, then I do, like, relax and go, it doesn't matter <laughs> if I dominate this conversation. Um, but but everybody else, I'm much more aware uh, about the, the potential to dominate uh, those kind of conversations, which is good. I don't always get it right. And uh, I think the, the, pro- the thing with conversations as well is... Sometimes topics come up that mean that it's very hard for you not to talk a lot. So, I mean, there was one uh, conversation I had with with, uh, a person where we were talking about different experiences of being sexually assaulted. And like that meant that I did talk quite a lot. Um, And then I got like feedback on that episode from somebody that said, you know, you should let your guests talk more. And it was kind of a strange kind of moment for me because I'm like, I'm, I'm talking about something I've never really talked about in this much detail with somebody. And it was a shared experience we were kind of passing backwards and forwards um but the nerves of me in that moment probably meant that I talked talked more and all of that sort of stuff but I think you know like anything it can be over things can be overstated not in not in every situation is it inappropriate for a middle class white man to talk a lot um sometimes it might be appropriate it's all very dependent on the person who speak you know what what the dynamic is the dynamic today is going to be definitely we'll both talk. So I'm not, I'm not worried about that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, that first meeting um, is beginning to feel more far away because I think I wouldn't have, I think I would have clocked it quicker today than right. I did then. Me too, I think, probably. So um, <clears throat> it's just this kind of feeling of time passing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, if only we could get good at spotting the things we're doing wrong when we're doing them rather than afterwards. I'm really great at seeing what I've done after the event and, and talking obsessing about, about it. it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Mm. Amazing at this. It's one of my two life skills. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. No, I'm oh, yeah, I'm still obsessing about like uh sentences I said in a in, you know in the wrong way, you know, 10 years ago where the person I said them to probably didn't even care. You know, that's how that's how it goes. You know, when you do finally dredge up these things you feel really guilty about, often the people you're feeling guilty about them towards are like, no, I didn't even notice that. Whereas it's something you didn't think about obsessively to 10 years that someone will be like, you said this thing and it really hurt me. And you're like, oh, my God, I would have felt, uh, you know, I've missed out on an opportunity to feel guilty about this for 15 years. Well, this is a perfectionist thing. Right. Uh, and also this is a self-protective thing because you're trying to. Protect yourself from a shock, a shock and hurt yes. that you feel yeah. that some, when somebody else comes to you and says, you hurt me. Right. And you can't protect yourself from that. This is the, like one of your, our tested and tried and true and will never work um, anti-vulnerability strategies. Right. Right, which comes from having been vulnerable and been kind of punished for that vulnerability in in certain ways, oh. uh, which, you know, is, is, is not an uncommon human experience 
Absolutely. Even middle class white cis men can have experienced that. <laughs> no, as a human experience, because mostly as a society we punish vulnerability. Indeed. And, you know, who we punish and how much we punish them, thats that all becomes much more about power dynamics and stuff like that. Um, but as a general rule, probably most of us have at some point uh, experienced trying to be vulnerable and having that, like, knocked uh, away in some way, I think. Or just being vulnerable, because, for example... Yeah, not trying like, to be, just being, yeah. Your, I know you talk a lot about being cis white middle, uh, middle class straight. Yeah, and, straight-ish. Um, just to make okay. it clear. That's something I'm curious about now. I'll interview you later. But um <laughs> straight dish is a descriptor I'm familiar with. But um it's um is this intersectionality thing because you talk about it a lot, you acknowledge it a lot, which yeah. I always appreciated. Uh but um certain things happened to you when one parts of your condition were more important than the others. So you were always male and white and all these things. But if something happened to you when your overall condition was child, yeah, uh, then that overpowered any or all privilege you might or not have might have or not yeah. have from the rest of it, because you can be white uh, child, and the child part of it just kills the rest of it in that moment. Yeah, no, sure. I mean, and also, I think one of the things people don't think about in terms of privilege, which we're all, like, comfortable using the word privilege now, we've started to sort of think about the world in in terms of privilege. I listened to a podcast with Travis Alabanza, who's an amazing uh, artist, Mm. and they uh, were talking about privilege, and they said something that I hadn't really thought of it, like, in those words, but it summed up how I've been thinking about it, which is that privilege is contextual. And so your privileges change in different circumstances and I think that's what people forget like it's very easy for me to say yeah middle class white man like that means I'm always privileged but actually in some circumstances you know people who are who who don't seem like they would have power will have had power over me because that's just the way that that, the circumstances are and as you say the most obvious one is childhood where we don't where none of us have power um but even in you know even in the in even in the adult world there are going to be moments where people who in theory shouldn't have the privilege do have privilege because it's contextual it depends on the circumstances when you're being hired for example right exactly right and what you know and, and you know like yeah exactly the, the, all of those kind of moments when yeah, somebody else has the power. And it's an interesting thing as well, because uh, if if somebody has power over you and they're from a kind of more marginalised point of view, then it's kind of going to be more reasonable for them to think, oh, I can just trample over that person because they've been trampling over me for centuries, um, which is kind of reasonable. But then at the same time, it doesn't necessarily uh, add up to a very good kind of thing for them or for the person that they're kind of well, using like, that power over. It's not like socially good, but at the same time, people from a marginalized community can have their own prejudice. It can yeah, be, right. for example, oh, here is a white guy. Let's knock him down yeah, a notch. Yeah, yeah. But it could be also... Here is a white guy. The whole entire culture tells me white guys are good people. Mm-hmm. We all buy into that. And yeah. also there is other stuff. Like, for example, you're being... All these hypothet- hypothetical situations. You're being hired by uh, a man who's a tradi- who's traditionally masculine and you're a bit like fluffy right. hippie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that I've got purple play. glasses, for God's sake. Like those. <laughs> those are yeah. nice. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but it, but it is... That's true. I mean, that's the thing. Um, or it could be, that's the thing, I could be being hired by a traditionally feminine woman who doesn't like 
non-traditional masculinity as yeah. well. Like, so that's the thing. In different circumstances, different people have power. Uh, but anyway, uh, the second <laughs> question that I ask everybody is, what do you do now? Which is a really interesting question, I think, because like, in our first conversation, people who heard you then, um, I think a lot of things have changed between then and now, I think. Mm. Yeah, it's... Um... It's a tough one. In our first conversation, I was um, still with my ex-partner, I think. Yep. And um, I quit my job and I was trying to make it freelance. Yeah, mm. yeah. you specifically kind of set it up with like, I have, I, you know, I'm trying to make, I've, le- I've left my day job, I'm now trying to make it in the arts. Yeah, and for uh, alert, I didn't make it. Well, yeah, <laughs> yet. I mean, yet, yet. on the one hand, I'm, I'm being kind of um, reductive for humorous effect. Yeah, sure. Because part it of was the... funny, but they <laughs> they don't know the concept. Um, well, there's there's quite a lot of stuff here. Um, for a start, I gave a semi-serious go uh, to being a comedian. So I wrote three solo shows. Well, when I say wrote, <laughs> I semi-improvised and then wrote uh, three solo comedy shows. One is in Polish, called No Such Place as London, Nie ma takiego miasta London. And two were in English. Uh, the first one's called Fuck It, I'm 30 which was uh, done in January 2017, which is when I turned 30, because I've been wanting to do a comedy show for a long while at that point. Uh, and my 30th birthday seemed like a great moment to push it, even if the show was really bad, at least all my friends would be there, yeah, you know. Right, right. <laughs> uh, so I've done it. The show was good, actually. I still have a recording of it, and I might publish it at some point, because it's actually a pretty good show. I'm pleased I've, with it. I've heard good things from people who've seen it. I wanted to make it and I, alone, but I never did. But people have fed back to me that they enjoyed it. So. Oh, really? Oh, that's awesome. Uh, I had I had a nice time myself, so that's nice. Uh, my second show was called Fucking European, and I think that was, a trick, that was trickier in many ways because um, Fucking European was written because I was called a fucking European around the referendum. I was, I think, reeling from that for a little bit. At the time, 2016, 2017, I was doing a lot of improvised stand-up. Just, I have a friend who has a comedy night, and I would go there and climb on stage and just talk for 10 minutes. Um, And make people laugh occasionally, and sometimes not. So that was an experience, and that anecdote just kept showing up, and I built the show around the anecdote. Weirdly, the first fucking European was almost completely improvised, which I sort of... Um, I marvel at my own confidence because when I did Fuck It Up 30, about 48 hours before the show, I recorded the show finally. I wrote it down, or rather, I recorded it. I re listened to it before the show. I made notes. Right. And when I compared the two, they're not word for word, but anecdote for anecdote, everything is in sequence. I was really good at this for whatever reason. That audio thing really works. Uh, with Fucking European, I had a mind map. There wasn't. A sequence. Right. I just told people that story, but they still seem to enjoy it. I have um, very little video footage. Uh, I even charged admission, like a very like a, like a fiver, and it was still a, a decent show. And then I got uh, to do fucking European in Theatre Royal Stratford East, in their now non-existent uh, space, uh, right. Jerry's uh, Jerry's studio. And that was kind of, I think, the experience that made and broke me at the same time. Because at the, around the same time, I was and still am writing a solo show that is written called Five Dresses I Never Wear. Right. And I have about 20 minutes of that show. So I got that fragment in Calm Down Dear at Come That People Theatre. That was on the 21st of January. Uh, this year. Wow. I think so. This year. So it's all a bit recent. And then uh, I was doing Fucking European on 8th to 10th of February in Theatre Royal Stratford East. 
and that was a, a festival they had. Um, oh dear, I forgot the name of the festival. I just remembered a slogan, which was "When they go low, we go high," and it was all about slightly political statements. Right. So my solo show was there Thursday to Saturday. It was on nine p.m., which made it slightly difficult to get more audience in. I think because yeah. it was a solo show as well. Yeah, so yeah, like yeah. one person tweeting, two people tweeting with my like yep. same producer. It was difficult, but I had like. 12, 15, 20-something people, depending on the show, depending on the night. And in that particular show, I have, I got to see sort of how theatres work. So I've done Come That People's Theatre show, which is deeply personal, deeply difficult to do. I had a bout of flu that was really bad, and yet looks very psychosomatic from the other side of it. I basically had a very high fever doing that show. Right. I've done it and it was good, but um, the five dresses I never wore is a show where I go into my relationship with femininity. I disclose a history of uh, sexual abuse in my family, and I have my mother's wedding dress in it. Like it cannot get more personal right, right, right. if I tried. It's yeah. very difficult to do. So I've done that, recovered from the flu, right. uh, then went to do fucking European, um, where I invested. 200 or 300 quid into the promotion because the deal was that I would pay my own promotion and the theatre would do their utmost to distribute the promotion so they distributed all the leaflets they recorded a podcast with me they had me write a blog post they got me an interview like they've done a lot of work for me and I invested the money into the promotion and then the way that theatres work is that after a month from the show, they told me what the breakdown of money was. I think I, I was keeping like majority of the money, it was 60-40 or something like that. And then a month from that, when they told me what the money was, I could invoice them. And then the month from that, I'd get paid. Now, keep in mind, I was still freelancer. Right. That was a hole in my budget. Uh, and that was quite a lot of effort. So after I finished the run of fucking European, I was very happy because I got to do it three times, and the first time was maybe slightly more stilted. The second time was my best, I think. The third time I have recorded, and it's still a decent show. I rewatched it recently. So it was good to see sort of what my range was and how right. I performed on different nights. It was a fantastic opportunity. And then I went to bed for a month. Uh, I was tired. I was psychologically unable to get myself going. And as a freelancer, if I'm not getting jobs, if I'm not applying for jobs, even if they are temp jobs, I'm not earning. And then I had a resulting hole in my budget that I did not expect. So what happened in the end was that I was like, I got out of bed at some point and went, well, I don't know if I'm going to make the rent. And I didn't really want to, but I tried to get benefits. So long story short, the benefits, I did get them. They didn't show up in time to fix the hole in my rent. I fixed the hole in my rent by a miracle, I got a job to coach a Russian actor to perform in Polish, which I was very good at, it turns out. I had a lot of joy from that work, so that was enjoyable. And that fixed the hole in my rent. Right. But uh, I also reached the conclusion that I cannot live like this. Right. What I found out from this whole very long convoluted story is I found that my mental health and my levels of stress were so high, I could not create in a way that I wanted. And right. I set about rebuilding my life. So... First thing I've done was signing with an agency to work with uh, children with disabilities, uh, primarily autism. Now, I didn't know whether I'd be any good at this job, but I did the interview. I was chasing all the jobs. I was really broke, you know, did the interview. I was unexpectedly good at it. Went to the first school, second school, third school, third school. The leader of the class just took me aside after the first, second day, and she said, look, we're recruiting. 
and I applied and I got the job. The job is very difficult, especially as a full-time person, because as an agency person, you sort of leave after 3.30 and you don't do any paperwork and you don't sort of deal with like, like actual teaching of the children. You're kind of there to plug a hole. You're kind of there to help. And as a person who knows their way around and knows how to behave a little bit as an agency person. As a full-time person, um, I've been receiving a lot of training. It's a very hard, emotionally demanding job. But um, I get regularity. I get to rebuild my life in a way that is less stressful. Right. Ah, maybe you want to talk for a while. No, that was I mean, a long the, yeah, well, I think, it, I think it was a good setup of, of of the major changes that have happened between the last time we spoke to you and and now, or I spoke to you. Not we, the, the audience aren't, aren't getting aren't getting to say very much. Um, <laughs> I should say actually to that audience, we're recording in your shared flat, mm-hmm. and it's relatively near to some sporting place. So if you hear kind of people cheer, like crowds cheering for the things we we say, which happened happened during your story, so I. Want wanted to explain why it's, it's 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 not we're not we're not surrounded by a massive crowd who are cheering for our life experiences <laughs> not yet, not yet. uh <laughs> it's just some sports thing happening in in the, in the background yeah there's a, there's a there's a lot to unpick there i mean it's interesting to me because i mean even though i mean i'm sort of five years into to trying to be a freelancer and uh the fact that i'm leaving london you know, uh, very shortly uh, is testament to the fact that it's incredibly hard to be a freelancer in the arts in London because it's so expensive to live here and artists in general are paid so poorly. Mm. Um, And so with those two combinations of things, doing stuff in the arts is super hard. But also, you know, when I think about why I'm moving and I am thinking, you know, I might get a day job or I might get a part time job at some point in the future if 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 I need to. And the reason for that is that it's actually much worse for my mental health being a freelancer uh, than it was being employed and I was really surprised by that because I thought that it would be the opposite way around because I wasn't very happy in jobs so I assumed that things could only get better but actually uh, sometimes you're not very happy but you could be worse uh, and you don't know that until you you experience it. I thought so too it's a very interesting point you raised because I had two day jobs uh, in here and one I was a receptionist and the other I worked in retail and then I also had promo jobs that were semi-regular. Being a receptionist, I just found overstimulating. I was a receptionist in a medical um, facility. It was a private healthcare thing. And as a receptionist there, you wore a headset. So at any time, a phone can ring. There could be a person that uh, you had to deal with face-to-face, or you were busy answering email. In one of those facilities, uh, there was also the TV that was on constantly right. for the people waiting. I found this like an assault on the senses, and I was right. wrung out after leaving the job. I was um, at the time living with my ex ex partner. Uh, <laughs> I, I was always living with someone, um, and um, he had a job at the time driving a forklift. He was an actor, and he would leave five a.m. and come back home around two ish. And I would come home after finishing five or six, so at seven. I would go to sleep, and he was the one who cooked dinner and woke me up for it because he had enough beforehand. Right. So he was uh, ostensibly he was doing a, a much more physical job. He was working in a warehouse, but uh, the way it worked for him was much better than the way my job worked out yeah. for me. And uh, I quit that also to be an artist that 
didn't work very well that time either. <laughs> so I'm I'm just trying to learn from my mistakes here. Any, anytime you quit, quit a job, if, if you're an artist, it's worth trying to make, see if you can make it each time because you never know. Because so the the thing that people never really take into account with, with the arts is yeah, sure, there's stuff about talent uh, that make, that gets you where you're getting, and there's also stuff about privilege and backgrounds and stuff like that, which also help artists to get where they're going. But there's also luck. Uh, like random luck not the luck that is like I was born into this circumstance and that helps me but just luck like timing all of those things so you never quite know when the moments are that could help you to get into where you want to get to but also I fear more and more now is you, you can't guarantee that where you want to get to, you're going to feel happier anyway. You know, you might get all of the success you imagine in your mind, whatever that is, whether it's, you know, it, it is not not all of us mean the same thing when we, we think about success or even we don't necessarily conceptualise what we want as success, but you might get what you want and then still be unhappy, still be the same person. So there's always that, that, that thing, I think. I have a bunch of things to say here and I'm trying not to forget any of them. Okay. Um... <laughs> Hang on, because uh, when you mentioned all these things like privilege and uh, uh, as an artist to succeed, privilege and uh, you said luck. Yeah. I would also add work ethic. I yeah, would absolutely. also add good mental health yeah. that enables work ethic. Well, I think those are both t- t- tied up a little bit with privilege and, and be. luck because, you know, no one chooses to have mental health issues. Um, they kind of happen to you. And, and that's an interesting thing about what you were talking about as well, that that you did a show that was very personal and disclosory. And in fact, both of those shows in different ways, I think, even though the yeah, comedy show... Yeah, but comedy is much easier for me. Yeah, of course, of course, I'd, it, I, it would be. But you're still like doing a very personal show, true storytelling style, that I have experience of doing that kind of thing and how that how much that takes from you, Simi- with similar type topics as well, of, of, of gender and, and, and stuff around that. Um, that, that I've, and I've found that that is... That takes a bigger toll than I expected in a similar way to your saying. But even if you were just talking about feeling alienated in a world post-Brexit, um, that would still be something that could knock your mental health at the end of it. And and when artists are doing art, which has, involves us diving into our personal experiences and then coming up with stuff to show other people that some that needs some aftercare it needs some some time after to to uh, come back to ourselves to recover and artists at the top of this the, the industry c- can have that they can program that in they don't all do it and a lot of them of course you know th- you know drugs or whatever else are the way that they get out of it and that becomes a circle or whatever mm-hmm. so I'm not saying all successful artists are happy uh, but they have the opportunity to program stuff in to look after themselves in a way that when you're on the the kind of the knife edge of paying your bills like you were you just didn't have that opportunity yeah it was you know I I am very grateful I've had those opportunities because you know when I've done my very first show there was this kind of consensus. If I was looking to com- comedy circuits to ask their opinion about doing my first show, they would tell, they would have told me don't, right? Because that's not not how it's done. Right? Comedy is done. You get your tight five, and you get your yeah. tight ten, and There's you get a, your tight fifteen, it's a and really then maybe maybe you do a show. Yeah. And uh, that's not how I work. No. And because I wasn't on the circuit, I was just experimenting with like a friendly environment. I decided I was ready to do a show, and I did a show. Uh, and because I've had that show on my CV and then I got the other show, I've, I knew already I've done it once. So it was doable. Yeah. So I was less stressed. I did it. 
I've had those three shows, those two shows, sorry, uh, Fact of 30, Fucking European, I had those two dates on my CV, I had uh, the materials, I had the leaflets I designed on my fucking phone because I've not had a laptop that works for some years now. Um, you know, all that stuff about being completely broken, using your friend's laptop that doesn't have battery that right, she gave you right, and right. all that stuff. So I've done all that and I think that's the reason why I got Camden People's Theatre, that's the reason why I got Theatre Royal Stratford East. Because I've done those absolute, absolutely on the shoestring I have no clue how the industry works shows. Right on my own. And I've also had sort of the courage to do those shows because uh, Sam Rhodes Comedy Explosion, which is my friend's show, um, Comedy Night I keep mentioning, yeah. gave me the space to experiment. Right. And I was an improviser and I had the space to experiment as an improviser. And I had confidence in myself as an improviser that I could do it. Yeah, All that stuff gave me those opportunities. Then I turned out uh, I wasn't quite in a privileged enough place to take full advantage of. Although I tried my very, very best. And that's the other thing, because I think I I was on this story about how my first day job was a bad fit. But you know what? I regretted quitting it for a long time because I was so black and white, all or nothing at the time. Right. Uh, what I could have done was going to my Polish manager, who was super cool in accepting me to this job and he gave me a chance and he told me how to write slash doctor my CV so that I would get in there. It was a corporate job which was very well paid per hour. I don't think I've had a job like that since in terms of pay. Right. What I could have done was said to him, look, can we make this part time? Yeah, exactly. And it didn't occur to me because I was already trained. It would have gotten easier. Yeah. I didn't have that plan. I didn't, you know, the way I managed my career or even those day jobs mm. was not very good in the sense that I had no practical outlook about these things. I knew I wanted to make art. The practical things were not very important to me, but it turns out they're very important in general. Yeah, right. And that's another thing, because my next job was in retail, and retail was in many ways a better environment, and in many ways it was worse. Uh, it was better because I got to talk to people, right, which so I sure. enjoy and yeah. I'm good at. Um, I was working in sort of uh, a shop that sold pretty things, basically. So it was visually stimulating and enjoyable. Right. Uh, it was also repetitive and boring. Right. You had to clean the shop every day. Yeah. Oh, my God. And the worst thing was how irregular it was. And that's the thing. When you think freelance, you don't realize that you have to have, in my case anyway, you have to have something of an iron work ethic and an right. understanding of what works for you. What works for me right. is a certain regularity. I have to have a routine in which I get to break it under controlled circumstances, like going for a vacation or going traveling, and then kind of come back to this comforting thing. That's what works for me, for my mental health. Right. It was incredibly hard to juggle any sort of artistic thing around a retail job, and it was sort of killing me. And also I remember that a lot of people around me complained about how the company was being managed, but nobody was doing anything about it. And I was, as always, a bit lost in the workplace. And I quit that job after two and a half years and after I was promoted to manager. So the upper management liked me and um, I had a good rapport with the boss then. And if I'd gone to them and said, look, this and this and this and this is pe what people say, Maybe right. we could do something about it. But knowing that you can bargain is almost... That's one of the things that a lot of people don't know. And even if you even if you 
know that you can bargain for better working situations even if you know that the confidence the the the, the, the belief in your in your worth to do Simple that skill. is really hard i've been reading this blog i read two blogs to teach me how to live right now captain <laughs> awkward for personal situations and ask a manager for job situations right both of those are very good blogs they're incredible and if i knew you know then what i know now i would have been in a different situation because <laughs> I met somebody from the previous job at one point and he said that the boss uh, spoke of me once and said something like that would hire back in a heartbeat. I'm like, oh, she was so nice. I really liked her. And um, so these are kind of retail turned out not to be great for reasons. And one of them was a irregularity. And then there is the luck. I had this incredible opportunity visited on me when I was working in that retail job. I was working my very last day and I was happy. And, uh, you know, you know me, Dave. You know, you know me enough and you met me. Whenever I have an emotion, <laughs> yeah. the broadcast is kind of pretty yeah, full on. Sure. I was so happy that day. And I met this woman and I advised her. I got her to buy a lot of stuff because I was so happy. <laughs> I was just like, this thermos is so good. I right. own it. It's amazing. She, Note to employers, if your staff are happy, you sell more. So, you know, make us happy. Mm, right. Uh, <laughs> so, um, you know, um, she bought a lot of stuff and then she offered me a job as a writer. Wow. Because we talked. Yeah. And I got to write this animation for her. It was a really lovely collaboration. I liked her a lot. And yet I failed to capitalize on that connection later. Because it was my very first freelance job. I was super stressed about it. I was terrified I was fucking it up yeah. the entire time. It was decently paid. I think it was like 500 quid or something. Which, you know, for me, getting my basically first out of the gate freelance writing job was a terrifying sum of money right? because I thought I would be fucking it up. And my mental health showed up immediately once I got it. I was sort of helping out with writing and animation and trying to do research. And um, it was terrifying. And uh, she gave me that chance and I jumped on it as much as I knew how. But at the same time, you know, I didn't do my website. I didn't connect on LinkedIn. I didn't. I failed to do quite a lot of things that from a business standpoint are necessary. Yeah, yeah. And I'm still struggling to do those things. And so that moment of luck definitely was there for me. Yeah, but it's also being able to capitalise on that luck when it happens. I agree. I mean, I've had similar situations. Sometimes I've capitalised on the luck. Sometimes I haven't. Um, but it's it's definitely, it's not enough to just have the opportunity. You have to also be in the position to receive that opportunity efficiently and uh, make the most of it. Um, I'm going to tell you something. I was, um, I've done courses with Ricky Peter Blair about right. stuff like that and those courses are very interesting because he talks being about being a part of the industry about being upbeat about um if you have you met ricky i have not <clears throat> met him in person but i know a lot of people who've collaborated with him and i know of him and i like his work he's incredible and yeah. he's got this incredible work ethic and part of his personality is how upbeat he is yeah he's very grounded and pragmatic yeah. and happy yeah, it's almost poli it's a, a, a political act in some ways. His yes, his happiness is political, yeah. and his uh, he demands happiness. He demands yeah. practicality and groundedness. And when you look at his personal story, which he doesn't particularly hide, and when you look at the fact that he's a fifty-something um, gay black working class, right, as working class right, as they come, right, right. Londoner uh, with a Caribbean um, roots. Right. Um, lesbian mom and everything and you know like when his personal story is amazing yeah. but it doesn't necessarily 
conspire to make you a happy person. Yeah, yeah, right. That is deliberate. And, um, you know, I followed Ricky around for years, and I'm maybe slightly less around now because I have so much on my plate. because you have a day job. I have a day job for one thing. That's the trade-off. But uh, I adore him and I adore his work. And um, we were in this workshop, and, uh, you know, Ricky and I get on, and uh, he's been always an incredible mentor to me and he likes me and he championed my work whenever I was doing work. He was there. Um, uh, He's fantastic. And he had uh, a collaborator of his um, fly over from, uh, from the States. They worked on this film together. Um, um, I'm not necessarily naming names, although I think that's pretty obvious if you look for it. Um, But that was this big U S director, fantastic guy. Um, and we were in one of his classes, like 40 people sitting, 40 people, no, less than, say 20 people sitting there. And this guy was sitting there going, look, you guys, you should all be networking with me. You should all be connecting with me. And he told us a story how he was in London for a film and then he wanted to go for coffee somewhere. And he literally turned to a room full of people going, is anybody going for coffee? And nobody connected with him at all. And then he was leaving and he said, you guys, uh, you should all write me an email. And here is my personal email. But very few of you will write me. And Ricky was there standing kind of with his hand on my shoulder at one point as I was asking a question, kind of boosting me up. And I didn't write that email until I think a couple days later. Was it one person or two people? Maybe one person wrote on the day and they took her to lunch. Right, art. right. Are you ready? Right. How ready are you? Are you ready in that moment? Sometimes the moment is all you get. And uh, I've had several moments in my life like that when I wasn't ready. Well, and what's being ready as well, I've had moments when I've tried to network or tried to try to make, make those connections, either through email or through in-person uh, moments. And some sometimes I think even though like i'm proactively doing the stuff rather than waiting like you like you're describing i'm still giving off insecurity a lack of kind of belief in myself or too much admiration for the person i'm trying to talk to um and 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 all of those things and that's where it doesn't work whereas there are definitely people who are in my life who have been very useful to me and 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 collaboratively and friendship wise and art wise who are quite you know have higher profiles than I do um and they have worked but I I just don't you know finding the right formula and and having you know taking that formula on the on the day and making sure that I actually kind of adhere to it is is really hard I think and again, it's very dependent on mental health and how comfortable you feel in your skin, in the room you're in, all of those things. Yeah, it's it's part of it, which is why I'm doing what I'm doing. Because one thing that I found is that I am not what I thought I was. Right. And that's an interesting thing to, to sort of state because there is, I think Ricky said once that we shouldn't have general generic dreams. And generic dreams are like Oscars and shit, you know? Because that's what we know. That's it's good to shoot for the stars, and Oscars are definitely a high-profile award. Right, it's a symbol of sorts. Uh, although you know you're willing to to move to Los Angeles, uh, or or what does it take for you to get that Oscar? Right. But um, the important part is to get the Oscar of your own life. Like what would 
be that worth to you? And I haven't answered that question for myself yet. Right. It's just also the question I keep asking myself is right now, who am I? What do I want and where do I want to right. end up? Right. And I'm glad we're having this conversation because also with Brexit here, I don't know where I will end up. Right. And I don't know what to do with myself. I'm just taking stock right now. I'm 31 and I'm kind of going, right. So what have I done? I have written about, I've writ written, I have written. <laughs> I can English, I promise. Uh, <laughs> I have written songs with uh, Kevin Plummer, uh, with whom I was collaborating with. I have written a couple of short plays slash plays that are fragments of larger plays. Okay, I have written some poetry. I would like to write, write some rap songs and rap is something that's really knocking about my head right now or like poetry with a beat to it let's say right, right. i have written poetry before right. i have performed it what can spoken I do? word yeah right spoken word yeah uh what else am i willing to write a novel i don't know i want to write a book of essays okay that's something that's percolating i'm just taking stock i got an acting job recently or maybe probably got an acting job i'm still waiting for it but i think it's gonna happen i took time off work for it good uh and the breakdown was Polish non-binary actress. I was like, where the fuck are those jobs? I've never had... It's the first time in six years I've seen one. And it was poetry. Uh, and they want the person to be able to speak uh, an idiomatic kind of English language poem with Polish text thrown in. And the person needs to know what they're speaking both times. And like, I am this person. I have never met another who fits that. Mm -hmm. casting. I know they interviewed six people. I don't know that they all knew what non-binary meant when they answered that casting. You know, I don't know that. I haven't met those other people. It's a very rare thing for me to get a casting that actually fits me, mm -hmm. is what I'm saying. So yeah. I've been keeping... You're a very specific person, which is um, not, you know, which is not to say that you, like, I mean, I've cast you in things. I think you, yeah. you know, I, I, I think you're great. Um, <laughs> but you. But you're right. The more specific an individual is, the harder it is to get work as an actor. And so <laughs> I'm trying to capitalize on my specificity, if that makes sense. Yeah. I'm trying to let go of generic dreams. And they're like, oh, the dream is, oh, I'll record an album. Well, I recorded an EP with my previous collaborator. Would I like another album? What would I like to be on it? Okay. Oh, I'll write a book. Well, what kind of book? Is it right. a novel? Is it a book of poetry? Is it the book of essays I keep thinking of? And you have the same dilemma that is, is has always been my dilemma, which is that you haven't got a specific uh, thing that you're you're focusing on. You are someone who makes art across mediums. Yes. Um, the, the way I am, and that is always difficult to sort of sell. It's like I've done this thing and I've done this thing, but the audiences don't cross over necessarily, or you know, or like you know. I sh I'm getting offered this opportunity, but I'm now interested in this alternative uh, kind of medium at the moment or whatever, you know. So it's always it's always difficult balancing all of those different interests uh, if you're someone who isn't a specialist in the arts. Um, and I think the arts needs both. I think that pe people mm. like us are, are necessary within the arts too. I'm not meaning to say that we're like, uh, you know, jacks of all trades and, and masters of none. I think the arts are transferable skills. If you develop one 
part of the arts that crosses over to the other parts of the arts that you work in like the work I've done as a writer has helped the work I do as a performer the work I've you know the work I've done in comics has helped the the, the, the work I do in you know podcasts you know whatever it is you know th- those things feed into each other it's not like you start from the beginning again every time you try and take on a new medium but I, I know for me part of it is that once I've done something to a certain level, I just lose interest in it because I want to try and, you know, the thing that makes me interested in things is the the journey, the trying to get good at it. And once I kind of do it the way I want it, I'm like, <laughs> yeah, that's fine. But now I want to move on and do yeah, something satiated else. satiated by the achievement. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's why I uh, basically made a study of Ricky Bilder's career because when you look at the man, he is that Right. He is an actor. He is a director, a good one. He's a playwright, fantastic one. He publishes books with his company now. They right. have a publishing thing going on. Uh, he and John Russell Gordon, who's a writer, uh, uh, they mentor writers all the time. Mm. He's been a mentor to a lot of people, myself included. He's a coach. The thing that was, I think, a day job to him and now is an indulgence slash a workout routine is that he leads a fitness class every Sunday that right. you can attend. Right, right. I attended it for a year and a half at one point, uh, which is fantastic because he does everything that we do, but he has weights on all the time. He works out harder than anybody in that room and he is soaking in sweat by the time and then he packs up and goes to rehearsal. Like... On his bike, usually. Yeah, I mean, he has a lot of energy. <coughs> he I, is, but he kind of lives de- deliberately. bottled so I can get yeah, hold of it. Yeah, he lives deliberately in a way that feeds that energy. Right. He surrounds himself by people that feed the love. And right. He... He's conscious in his choices. Yes. Which is not something I'm good at being. But I have my I appreciate moments. <laughs> I have my moments, and that's why I am incredibly grateful to have been mentored by him. And... Um, I am still trying to get this consciousness in my life. And sometimes I fail. I was never a drinker, but I have drank more this year than I ever have. Not in a sense of getting drunk. Right. But but I was never by alcohol. And I have a half bottle of wine in my kitchen right now, which is not like me at all. I mean, that's not the worst off the rails story, though. That's like, I mean, maybe it's good to have half a bottle of wine in your fridge rather than be somebody like, I don't know. The, 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 that doesn't sound like excess to me, but I'm not necessarily. I don't know your what this means to your me interpretation yet. Of it, yeah. You know, because uh, I'm not freaking out as much as I used to freak out about such things because, you know, um, my dad was uh, abusing alcohol when right. I was a child. So I had so a very strong. Context anti thing um now it's like if i were to look for a substance i abused that would be the internet anyway i'm much more <laughs> mentally oriented my coping mechanisms were always to do with reading right uh, and i'm much better about it now than i used to be also because of my work my work is generally suited to my talents and my challenges yeah i think you're very appropriate for the job that you've got it's, it's interesting because you said you know you didn't like you hadn't seen yourself would necessarily have thought you'd get that kind of a job but I think you've got a lot of talents that you would absolutely be useful for that I mean uh, performance is incredibly useful in terms of teaching and and educating and improvisation is essential in a classroom you know I actually think you've got a lot of skills and also you're used to being someone in the world who doesn't quite fit and <laughs> yes. you know that's actually very important working to have that when working kids, with, yeah absolutely. i'm just you know i'm just seeing a lot of humans who 
struggle to communicate, and right. I'm there to facilitate that. So I feel a lot of empathy. Right. Uh, but uh, my job is kind of nice for me in many ways because I've been doing promo for years and years, and that was a boring, b basic, in terms of talents that I would get to use. Right. Incredibly basic sometimes. Right. Uh, and C, I felt like I was part of capitalism, basically. Well, that is often the problem that I have as well when I'm working a day job, is that like, it would be nice to be able to turn that... Like, if we have to have jobs, it'd be nice to be able to turn off the part of us that feels guilty about the capitalism that we have to we have to be part of. But it's definitely better when I'm working in a job that isn't part of capitalism in the same kind of way, which I guess is what you're doing now. Yeah, it feels worthy. And, right. But also, the, the interesting part is that I think working with children, I had this kind of misogynist part of my brain kind of going, uh, interesting. ah, people who work with children are just like not very talented. Yeah. Uh, kind of that thing that you devalue and right, you know how they work, so how they tell valuable, you yeah. yeah you know how they tell your parenthood is the hardest job in the world i am finding that first sound right now because you know the communication is incredible and uh, i had to actually attend the course about physical aggression and how to handle it right. and how to de-escalate conflict mm-hmm. um boundaries really come into my job in many ways, because we have to teach our young people boundaries, but we also have to um, have boundaries with ourselves about how much of ourselves we give to this world. Absolutely. Which demands everything of you. But at the same time, I still want to be an artist and I still want to leave the job and do another thing. Sometimes right. I'm exhausted. Right. Uh, so these are kind of conversations I'm having with myself on a daily basis. How much can I give here? Uh, can I afford to give this much? Sometimes I make mistakes. Mm-hmm. But one valuable thing this job gave me, it gave me a month of holiday that was paid. Right. I think it's the first time right. in a very long time that I've had that. And in that month, I found out that I am not naturally anxious. Mm-hmm. I have found out this first when I got the job because some of my financial stress fell off. I was like, wow, yeah, I'm not distressed yeah. naturally. And I found that in a deeper way because I had August off and I wasn't looking for a job because I knew that paycheck was coming and I was still doing my pub quiz. That's another line of work I'm in. I do two pub quizzes a week. Um, That's the way I supplement my income. And again, Um, it's another performance. It is a performance based thing. Improvisation. Uh, So it's it's just a thing I do in the evenings sometimes and I get money for. Right. But um, this August, I. My landlady was coming. I had to clean everything. Uh, and uh, I'm sort of taking stock of the things I own. Some of them I would like to sell. Uh, it's just a taking stock moment. And uh, also taking stock of my personality. What works for me? Right. What would I like to do? I know I need more physical exercise in my life. I am maybe in a position to schedule that and pay for that now. Uh, which right. is incredibly important. Right. Because uh, I need to not be stressed so that I can make art and I need to on the flip side handle the stress I do have and choose to have in a better way because I choose to have a stressful job this job is incredibly stressful and I choose to have a stressful job as an artist which is pressure Uh, so it's all come down in my case to stress management it turns out and uh, certain regularity and um, making good use of the time I have and having less of it so I have to manage it better right 
And the most interesting and nice thing about my job is that my phone is locked in a little cupboard for most of the day. Uh, yes, right, of course. Yeah. And it's good for me. And um, if I ever do go back to freelancing, I think I might have to employ similar measures. Right. I mean, that's a sensible thing. The, the people I know who are probably the most successful at, at freelancing are the people who can set good boundaries with themselves, can work basically nine to five, can have weekends, like force themselves to have, you know, holidays, all of those things that if you're someone who is not good with boundaries, like I am and possibly you, yeah, uh, that makes it harder. But also if you're at the bottom and you don't have any money you don't have the the option to stop as well like it's it's not just in your head that you're worrying constantly it's also like on a practical level you can't go on holiday you can't do these things because you just don't know when the when the jobs are going to come and what i've learned from doing this kind of for five years is is that a lot of the effort you make the constant hustle to try and get jobs doesn't work out it's just it's just effort that is stressing you out and actually doesn't get you anything at all and what actually gets you work as a freelancer is time you know you wait a year and then suddenly people contact you if you if you if you're you know someone like me with a certain level of of of, of prominence i guess in certain ways and it's having the time and i i i and noticing that makes me it makes it really clear to me that you know middle class people who are independently wealthy who go into the arts they have the time they can be a freelancer they can wait for a year and then start getting the jobs come in and benefit from that in a way that when you're on the knife edge of of, of poverty you, you you can't you can't you can't wait and you know i wouldn't have been able to struggle on this long if i hadn't had certain elements of privilege but also a partner that was had a, a, an actual wage mm. um you know and you know th- those sorts of things so, yeah, it's it's interesting to me that, you know, I never get jobs from all of the endless emails I send, or I, I do occasionally, but rarely. Uh, the jobs that I get are when people approach me uh, after a while, you know. The important part that you're omitting here, we get jobs because we make work. Yes, right. You make work. I make a lot of free work. And people yeah. know your work. Right. And because they know your work, they will approach you. This is basically... We're standing in here waving a giant flag that says, please hire me on yeah. one side and this is my work on the other side. And sometimes that brings results. Yeah, and often it, though, it's a double bind with making work uh, to, to attract people's interest because what, what you find is you make work for free and, you know, you get people's attention. But when they come to you, they don't want you, they don't want to pay you to make the work you're already doing for free. They want to pay you for the new thing that they want you to do. Like the BBC won't, 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 would never consider hiring any of my shows to have on their network because they want new things. They don't want existing things. So no one will pay you for your existing work uh, in the same way that you hope when you start doing it. You know, my, my dad's always, say, well, he used to say to me, he doesn't say so much anymore because he's in a different state of mind than he used to be. But, you know, he would always say, you know, when are the BBC going to, but get you know by getting better acquainted or when are they going to buy stand-up tragedy or whatever I'm like no you don't understand they're not interested in buying those things they might be interested in hiring me to do other things on the back of that work but if it exists in the world for free people don't want to buy it um, because they they want to sell their stuff they don't want stuff that is already in existence for free so I I kind of understand it from both sides but yeah there's a lot in the arts that I feel like it's it's kind of like what you were saying earlier on too artists don't necessarily have naturally the skills to do these kind of life 
important like life organization skills we're not really taught those skills uh, there's nobody kind of looking after artists in society like you know not that i'm saying that artists need that especially i'm artists are just human beings and the human beings need help um, but there isn't much help within society so if you're doing something like what we do that is hard to hard to do without support if you don't have the right personality for it there's loads of artists who have the right personality for for hustling for for getting through i mean i'm not saying they're always happy their mental health is always good but i do know lots of people who are better suited to this life um as it stands but that doesn't mean that they're better artists it just means that they're better suited to making art under capitalism i'm gonna say a couple of things here one is that Ricky Beetleblur is doing another workshop on the 30th of September, and I think there are two places still left. I'm not going this time. I, I'm on the right track, I feel. Yeah. I don't want to take up that space for somebody who actually needs it. Right. But I think Ricky is the only person that is doing that kind of work that shows out artists how to live and how to work and he doesn't he never branded himself as a mental health specialist and he will tell you outright that he is not but it does touch on it quite strongly and uh, the second thing is that I keep I have it written down somewhere even I wrote it down I keep meaning to do a workshop for artists on this topic right I think I already wrote it like (laughs) six months ago or something Uh, and um I would probably want some money for it, a small amount, because it does take money to rent a venue. Right. And it does take a working Sunday from my actual working weekend. But uh, maybe I could do this thing. So, you know, you're invited if (laughs) if I ever do it. I mean, and and I don't mean to suggest that there aren't, you know, there there are people who are doing work... Uh, similar to, to to Ricky, I mean, one of the things that I really believe in is is an organisation called Arts Emergency, who are kind of trying to get people from working class backgrounds uh, to have the skills to get to get successful, mm-hmm. um, so that you know that they are being helped in how to organise their time and mm-hmm. and and how to make art, the arts and humanities both. And so, yeah, there are organisations out there. If you're an artist who's struggling listening to this, there are people out there. But then it's also, you know, again, it's it's all dependent on where you are, what what time you have, what access you have uh, on all of these things. So, yeah, it's a tough one uh, being a freelancer. I mean, I'm, you know, if we do if we record in another two years time, you know, it might be that I've got a day job and you're like a, a, a relatively successful artist. Like it, things things move in swings and roundabouts. You know, speaking of, of, of moving, we've we've moved through the time uh, ex- <laughs> expertly, which is not surprising. I think I had the same sensation the first time we recorded together, which was like, whoa, how 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 <laughs> how have we already got here? And I've recorded with you not just like this. I've also had you as a character in uh, in The Family Tree, um, which you played a part in the second series that people can hear already. Uh, a, a very different part from most of the parts in The Family Tree, a very different flavour um, in two ways, really. Like, topic that you talked about were, were much were, were some of the deeper and more kind of most complicated topics that you were talking about. But also, you were, you know, you were an action hero in some ways. You were, <laughs> you, were, you were doing an action scene, and most of the 
most of the family tree is, is based on sort of people, two people sitting down together, whereas you're running around um, brilliantly. Um, Thank you. I was really grateful for that part. That was so much to do. Yeah, and we've recorded another, I mean, we, you know, uh, we've recorded another performance that will come in season three, which, which will be coming out in 2019. So we won't really speak to that very much, apart from to say maybe that it's 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 a very different scene from the first scene. But how 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 have you found working in the family tree? Like it, like the process of doing it. Like how did you find that? I really enjoyed it because you know a lot of the time I haven't done a lot of castings, but frequently when I do a casting or I try to submit myself for a part, I'm like not necessarily feeling that I'm wrong for it in the sense that I know I could play the part, but it feels like the person setting up the casting will not agree with me, that they will find me too strange. Right. Uh, And that often is the case. People aren't, you know, the dilemma is that uh, if I go for a Polish part, they will want blonde and feminine and braid and all these things. And if I go for a sort of genderfuck part, sometimes my accent is an issue. It's been known to happen. I don't audition a lot. But uh, it's just this weird compartmentalizing thing. Uh, With the family tree, the first gift that you uh, gave me was that you were asking for the person I am, not the, you know, person I quote-unquote should be. Right. Um, The the performers determine their characters uh, more, if well, as much, if not more, than than me and Jen, who are the the creators of the show. And that was another nice thing, yeah. yeah. Because, uh, again, you were asking for the experience I've had. Like, I am not a theatre school trained actor. Uh, partly because I didn't want to do it in Poland. And when I came to uh, London, I realized that most acting training was not financially accessible to me. And that's aside from later realization of, do I want to become what actor acting school makes here? Which is a different realization because yeah, yeah, I yeah, haven't had yeah. the luxury to find out what it makes you exactly because right, right. I haven't but done if you, it. But if you go through it, it's too late to undo it. So, um, you know, well, it's, yes it's, it's no. pros I and mean, cons, I think. There, is, there are pros and cons, as you say. But uh, even now, if I had the money, I might invest in some sort of more acting training because I don't do a lot of these jobs. Therefore, I'm less confident about them. I right. don't get to do them a lot. But one thing I do regularly, every two weeks, is improvising. Yeah. I am confident about that. I know I can deliver it, and that's what you were asking for. Yeah. So that way, you know, that took a lot of an, of the anxiety away from me in terms of what this part was and what was being asked for. And then there was the actual creativity and the fact that I got to be physical, because uh, for a person who's quite brainy and quite kind of cut off at the neck at times, which I am, yeah, not I by rela- choice, I but by circumstance, yeah. I'm not necessarily great with my body in terms of getting on with it. And that's something I constantly work on uh, mm. because I feel like there is much more to me and also my opportunities and as an artist if I ever work this shit out. Yeah, sure. But um, having said that, whenever I act, I have to be physical. I have to... I have to do that in order to get out a performance mm-hmm. in some yeah, way. For sure. And because uh, we were running around the park, uh, I was able to be more emotional than I would be if you just sat me down. Yeah. I was able to get out more of myself. And uh, in a way, it was it was brilliantly done for me because I didn't have your eyes on me. 
Right, it was, it was weird for us, like, because, no, <laughs> you know, normally when we're recording The Family Tree, I'm in the scene, but I wasn't in that scene. Um, but also, you know, we were listening to it on a kind of delay, like, you would send it over to us in, like, in a signal, uh, and then we would be listening to it, and we'd sort of, like, see you run past us, and then, like, we'd hear the next bit of, like, what you'd send us. Um, but it worked really well, and, uh, you know, we were really, really pleased with that. Like with that performance, with how it all turned out in the end, but also, uh, yeah, just like the 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 different dimensions that you brought, and I think that's that, that's been the case with every performer we've had. Like because we've been offering people the opportunity to write their parts to a certain extent themselves or like to at least uh put some of themselves into their parts, or uh, if not themselves like something that comes from them even if it's not like drawing on direct experience everybody is putting themselves into the roles that it's meant that with every person we've we've kind of had into the project it's changed it all in in exciting ways and brought different dimensions in that we never would have thought about you know so it's been a great collaboration and in fact in fact it feels like to us now it, it it's been writing itself for a while like we're like we're just kind of like grabbing the pieces and and sticking them together but we we kind of it's an or- organism of its own that we're just like the the, the work is for <laughs> you, know, um, well, you you do this yeah. brilliantly and just uh, as a footnote of me bringing myself in the part again you asked for who I was also in part of um, me being Polish and that I appreciated a lot because um, again when I'm being asked for Polish I'm being asked for a Polish stereotype more often than right. not and uh, people will kind of get stuck on the fact that my accent isn't quite as Polish as they'd like me to uh, I don't know I if I try to make my accent my Polish it ends up as a caricature of the thing well yeah uh, but you shouldn't have to make your I accent am, you know, more Polish you literally are Polish right I am a person who lived in different places that's kind of what those people sound like yeah. I'm slightly scrambled and I'm okay with that right uh, but um, I think I I have been learning to recognize parts that aren't asking me to cut bits of myself off right and this was a part like that and that's what I'm grateful for that I wasn't being asked to deny who I was I wasn't being asked to leave some of myself at the door no. I was being asked to bring all of it and make creative use of it right. and uh, that was the joy of this project and I think that project I'm possibly having in the works right now might be something like that too right. and um, learning to find and recognize those parts I think is part of me being a performer as an, and an actor because um, I know a lot of people do like lots of weird films on that they get on star now lots of weird student projects it's a valid way to to get footage of yourself but i've got no time like i'm not going to go down that route yeah just finding those projects where i'm being asked for what i can bring to it which is i think considerable even though i don't have a classic theater training i have a lot of different skills i can bring if that's what you want then ask for that and i will bring that but uh yeah it's just it's just a rare thing because I have a very specific skill set. I don't have theater schooling. I have seven years of music school on the piano. Do you need that? Because I got that. You know, like it's. Yeah, I mean that's our one big regret about the family tree. Actually, with all of the different performers, uh, we could have done an excellent uh, musical episode, but we, <laughs> we never managed to 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 make that work. Um, but but yeah, I mean. Uh, 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the thing. There are lots of different skills that every human being brings and experiences as well are, are part of what we all bring uh, to anything. And, and, and I think a lot of the arts or a lot of society levels things out and, 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 and kind yeah. of ignores the the different things that people can bring to the table and only wants the the, the stuff that that is a mad, you know, the knife and fork they want. They don't want the food. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's, that's a very good way to put it because it's, it's very, um, especially the more you look into, it's interesting when you talk to actors, even Hollywood actors, they are full-blooded, weird people. Yeah, right. They are really weird and they got that far because they were able to utilize their weirdness yeah. even though the roles they play sometimes are so cookie-cutter. Right. Isn't that strange yeah, yeah. that we like that cookie cutter experience uh, that we get of Hollywood that you, you know, uh, with my ex-partner, I used to watch Netflix movies sometimes. Sometimes it was like a superhero movie and I would have this experience of predicting what the next line was. Right. And I can, uncannily so, I can say what the next line is going to yeah, be. Yeah, because it's a formula. We, yeah, it's so formulaic. My mother really likes French movies for that reason because they're unexpected. I, <laughs> you know, I sit down when I'm in Poland, like yeah. we watch like whatever. She's got Canal Plus, or, Canal Plus or something, some sort of right. TV station that in Poland again we do the Hollywood stuff, but we also get more European stuff. Right. We got a lot of French because you're fucking European. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> uh, we know that the kind of even though. Everything is so anglicized, let's yeah. say that everything is so Americanized, culturally yeah, speaking. Right. Uh, the further you move away from this kind of English central that is UK and America, yeah. uh, then you get the other stuff. And uh, I suddenly, I, I'm suddenly engaged in the plot because it's going places I didn't think right. it would go. Right. And you don't even realize that anymore it's so normalized yeah but then again you know the best american tv that's happening now in this kind of tv renaissance again is stuff that surprises you like that's that's it's interesting living in a moment when things being different and surprising is starting to be something that is kind of hitting some parts of the mainstream not all of the mainstream uh but enough of the mainstream to mean that you can start to see weird uh people presented because people all people are weird like when i'm say weird people i don't mean that to other other us i actually mean to like suggest that that's there's very few universals or commonalities that we have because we're all very different but uh one of them is that we're weird like off like to each other because anybody's weird like the people who are super normal are probably the most weird to me absolutely absolutely (laughs) and and they would never think of themselves as weird whereas some of us have 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 only been you know had no choice because we've had weird shouted at us from all directions yeah before you realize like uh, you know i was normal to me until people started telling me i was weird exactly at this point i'm just like you know what i'm weird deal with it like fuck off i'm strange i'm quirky whatever you want to say i'm I'm just i'm just that i'll I'll take your fucking words i'll use i'll take that word yeah because i prefer Um, that to yeah i'm fucking weird i'm a fucking european i'm you know a fucking strange person and what's your point right (laughs) like i'm really bored with it like no, because also I could just kind of go take normal and go, yes, I'm normal for me. Yeah. I'm completely normal for me. What I do is not strange to me. This is right. how I work. This is what I want to do. This is how I want to live, uh, constrained by finances slash, you know, yeah. possibilities. Within this circumstance I find myself in, yeah. I decided on having this life within this circumstance and I am okay. 
that's yeah, what I, I mean, want. that's a great, yeah, that's a good, uh, good position to be in. I mean, uh, everything's flux, life fluctuates, so I hope you remain in in that attitude for a, for a while. <laughs> for a while. Um, I like the, that. The, the, it's been a real pleasure getting even better acquainted with you. Um, the last question I ask everyone is: Do you have anything to plug? Not yet. Uh, not yet. Yeah. I am working on a book of essays, which sounds like I'm jinxing myself, but I'd like to write this down completely. It's called Foreign Female. So it's something I might be working on, maybe look into self-publishing, maybe not. It's all very open. So it's a thing that might happen. Uh, I will probably continue writing Five Dresses I Never Wear, so that's, again, a thing that might happen. Um, but artistically, I've been lying real low. Family Tree we talked about, and yeah. that's going to come out like a well, from now. Although if people haven't listened to The Family Tree, uh, they should definitely uh, check out Rita's performance in season two. Uh, although I would actually say you should start at the beginning on episode one. It'll take you a while to get to Rita, but it'll be really worth it when you get <laughs> when, when you get there. Uh, and the rest of it is also good. It's not just that Rita is the only good thing in it. Um, so, you know, but like, yeah, uh, start at episode one. It's like, it's, it's not, you know, you've got a big gap before 2019 happens. So you've got time to catch up on the first two seasons. Um, if there's any thing that is binge listening uh audio which like i think the family tree could easily be that so if you're going on holiday and you've got like a whole uh long time on a train or a plane like give it a listen uh, it's a, a, an unusual experience it's a weird show it's a weird show and as we've mentioned weird is not a bad thing so you know what in terms of plugging if you're a person dear audience Listeners, if you're a person who got to the end of this conversation, I thought <laughs> this is an interesting person I'd like to make work with or get in touch with, please get in touch with me. I have a Twitter at Rita Sushek. I have a Gmail, rita.sushek at gmail.com. And that's S U S Z E K? Yes, it is S U S Z E K. Oh, yes, because I think in the first episode you did talking with Rita. Can you do talking with Rita Sushek this time? I can indeed. I can indeed. Uh, And uh, so that's kind of my sort of open call right now because I am still working on my website. It's sort of a work in progress. I am still working on updating my LinkedIn. Embarrassingly, I can only direct people to my Twitter or maybe Instagram, which is Rita underscore vision. but there are things being made in this corner of the world. And I think by 2019, I will have an online presence I'll be more proud of. And there is more work coming from this corner. Well, the, the football crowd or whatever sport it is <laughs> are cheering us on for that. Um, so, yeah, the last thing I ask my guests uh, to do is to say goodbye to the audience. Goodbye, audience. Thank you for listening. Bye, everyone. And since recording this conversation, I have, in fact, moved out of London. I'm now living in Lancaster. If you're interested in hearing about masculinity and what patriarchy does to men and to all people, if you go to the Unbound website, and there'll be a link to this in the show notes, you can find Mansplaining Masculinity over there and pre-order a copy of that book. Unbound is a kind of cross between a publishing company and a crowd funding company which means that the way that the books get published is that people who want to read the books 
pre-order those books. They can pre-order them as a digital copy or as a hardback, or they can pledge more money to get different kinds of things along with the book that they're pre-ordering. You can find all of that stuff over on mansplainingmasculinity.co.uk. If you're interested in reading about me and my dad and our relationship and dementia and memory and time and history and politics and love and friendship check out my essay series down to a sunless sea memories of my dad as well as making getting better acquainted i also co-produce and i guess star in the magical realist audio drama podcast the family tree in order to keep making it and to make it's as good as we want it to be we need your help so if you can afford to then please do consider signing up to our patreon appeal you can find getting better acquainted on twitter at gba podcast you can find it on facebook at getting better acquainted and you can find it anywhere that podcasts go to hang out with each other on the internet and if you want to email me personally that's gba podcast at gmail.com or i'm Goosefat101 on Twitter. And remember, there are lots of ways to get better acquainted.